Listen, I am one of the deepest sleepers you're ever going to meet, and I mean that. Um, I can sleep through windstorms and through alarm clocks and through screaming and crying babies and through dogs barking in my kitchen. I can sleep through movement in my bedroom and knocks on my door, okay? I can sleep through everything. I'm there. Pass out. Anybody like that? You're a deep sleeper? Once I'm asleep, I am asleep. Okay, but several years ago, Aaron went through this season of deep, full-blown night terrors, and I don't say that lightly. Um, They were scary, these vivid dreams that would spill over into the waking world, and some of y'all have been through that, and you know what that's all about, like nightmares taken up a notch, and I'll never forget the first one. There I was, asleep in my bed doing my thing, sawing logs and snoring up a storm. All of a sudden, my beautiful wife was screaming at the top of her lungs and pummeling me with the hardest punches I had ever felt in my life. Okay. And she was convinced there was somebody in our room with us. So I wake up to my wife screaming, telling me there's somebody in our room, and I'm getting pummeled. And you can imagine the rush of adrenaline that I felt. I was wide awake, Okay, and I'm trying to calm her down, trying to assess the situation. Finally, I wrap her arms up and try to whisper sweetly in her ears, hey, Aaron, it's okay. It's just me. There's nobody else here. Patting her head. And eventually she calms down, right? And she's able to doze back off to sleep. And there I lay (laughs) on my pillow, covered in sweat, adrenaline racing, on the verge of tears, okay? Wide awake. And I just got to think that Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis had the same effect on them that Aaron's night terror had on me. However sleepy they were before they heard it, after it was said and done, they were wide awake, shaken by the word of their Lord to them. I can't imagine. I was talking about it with my kids last night. What would it be like if we got a letter straight from the hand of Jesus to the people of Central Baptist Church. Here's what I see in you. Now, how seriously would we take it? And I just happen to believe that the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 are meant to be read just like that. They're meant to be read as the Lord of the church speaking to us. And my prayer is that as we work our way through this passage, whatever effect it had on the church in Sardis, I don't know. The church in Sardis is not there today. But I pray that Jesus uses it in our church and that he speaks clearly to us. And that as he does, we'd all know that the church who heeds Christ's wake-up call will experience renewed intimacy with Jesus in this life and confidence before the Father the life to come. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to work our way through this passage to see how Christ's wake-up call ought to encourage us. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, I myself often steer clear of it. Um, You may not know the context in which this letter to the church in Sardis comes. And Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them's name was John. And after Jesus had ascended into heaven after his resurrection, John continued preaching the gospel all around the ancient world. Uh, tradition tells us that John lived the longest of all Jesus' disciples. They called him the Elder John because he was really, really old. 
And at the end of his life, he found himself on the other end of Roman persecution. So the emperor sent him to an island to live out his exile, the island of Patmos. And one Sunday morning, while he was praying and thinking about all his friends in the churches he pastored, the Holy Spirit gave him a vision. He saw it as clearly as you see me and as I see you. And the vision was a vision of Christ, Jesus, who had ascended to God's right hand and was fully arrayed in his majestic glory. John tells us in, John, in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus, he saw Jesus walking. And he was walking through a room like the inner court of the temple. And there were seven menorahs, seven lampstands, which represented the seven churches of Asia Minor that John pastored. And as Jesus walked among those lampstands, he was communicating to John the fact that Jesus was observing everything that was happening in his church. He knew each one of them. And so he spoke to them, to the church in Philadelphia and Laodicea and Smyrna and Ephesus. He spoke to them about the particular circumstances of their walk with him. And in Revelation 3, we hear his letter to the church in Sardis. Sardis is in modern-day Turkey. And this is what he said to them. I know your works. You have a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain and we're about to die. For I have not found your works completed in the sight of my God. And I believe Jesus wants to speak to us from this letter. And there are three truths I want you to see this morning. The first is simple. That Jesus sees the spiritual reality that our public reputation hides. Jesus sees the spiritual reality that our public reputation hides. Hides. You see that there in verse 1. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Now, when Jesus talks about the name they have, it is the public reputation they have, the tagline about their church, what everybody says when they think of those people down there on the corner, the church in Sardis. What is their public reputation? Now, we're not given much details about the church in Sardis. We're not some mentioned in the New Testament anywhere else. We can rely on some spotty archaeological evidence, and we can read between the lines in this passage. So I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what they base their reputation on. I don't know what things they point to to justify the claim that they were indeed alive. But apparently they did. They had a claim to being a vibrant, living church family. Perhaps they were like us, churches today. I don't know if you've been around many pastors, but one of the things pastors like to do is talk about the health and progress of our churches. And I was around a bunch of pastors this week, and pretty early in conversations, you start talking about the things of nickels and noses. How's your budget going? And what's attendance like? Sometimes you expand that, and it's your buildings, your budgets, and your bottoms in the pews. <laughs> These are great. These are little, uh, little metrics we can use to evaluate the health and well-being of our churches. And apparently, whatever the first century equivalent was to nickels and noses, buildings, bottoms, and budgets, uh, they had it. And when you looked at the church in Sardis on paper... Every metric you looked at said they were alive. You have a name that you're alive. 
But there was a spiritual reality underneath the surface that that public reputation couldn't hide. Jesus saw the truth. He saw through it all. He said, you're dead. He looked through the hustle and bustle of programs and ministries and Sunday morning attendance and budget. And he saw the absence of genuine spiritual vitality. You're dead. I mean, they had the outward display. But the internal reality was absent. And you ask, well, what might that inner reality be? Most scholars think that the challenge the church in Sardis faced wasn't that different from what churches faced in, across the Roman Empire in the first century, that they had been tempted to compromise their faith to avoid persecution. And so here are these people living out their faith in a pagan world, and they've realized that if I'm going to take my faith in Christ seriously, it's going to cost me out here in the world. And so why don't we just accommodate or compromise what we believe about Jesus to the prevailing winds of our culture. Or maybe they had followed, followed the footsteps of God's people in the past that we read from in Isaiah 58. That they had gone through the motions of their religion, showing up to church and going through all the obligations they felt were necessary, but they lacked the vital relationship with God. All they had left was an empty ritualism. And I want you to know, I don't necessarily think this whole sermon is just about us as Central Baptist Church. But as I think about Jesus' description of the church in Sardis, I find it hard to identify a more apt description of the church in our day than to say that we have a reputation for being alive, but we're dead. I mean, think about this. There are more churches and parachurch ministries active today than there have been at any point in human history. There's greater access to spiritual truth thanks to the internet and social media than there has ever been at any point in human history. There's greater access to scripture, the life-changing word of God today than there has ever been in human history. You carry it around in your phone. It's in thousands of languages around the world. And yet, the lostness of our world and the inefficacy of our churches have never been more obvious than they are today. I mean, consider these statistics. There are 30 million people who call the state of Texas home. You believe that? 30 million people. Can you fathom how many people 30 million people is? I, I struggle with that number. That's, that's a lot of people. 20 million of those people are lost. Out of the 30 million people who live in the state of Texas, two-thirds are lost. 20 million people. Maybe you're like me, 20 million is hard to wrap your mind around. So let's just take our circle of influence the 15-mile radius of our church. If the 2020 census is right and the statistic for the state holds true of Luling, there are, I've got to make sure my stats are right, 30,000 people in our 15-mile radius who are lost. 
more churches than there have ever been, greater access to spiritual truth. The Bible's available on every handheld mobile device, and yet there are 20 million people in the state of Texas who are lost and going to hell apart from saving faith in Christ. And it doesn't bother us. We can sleep through anything, apparently even the sound of our neighbors slipping across the great divide between this life and the next, headed to spend an eternity apart from Christ. We're asleep. I mean, the days of the church being the center of every community are over. We don't live in the Bible Belt. We live in a post-Christian world. Church attendance has decreased in every generational, in every demographic of the generations, from the boomers to the Gen X to the millennials to the Gen Z, every generation farther and farther and farther away from God. And so we know the world is the world, right? So how is the church doing in this environment? Last year, LifeWay Research published a study. They called it the State of Theology. They examined the religious beliefs of people like you and me, evangelical Christians, people who believe the Bible's God's word and that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. And what they found was full-blown theological confusion among us. We're confused on the doctrine of God. 65% of evangelicals either strongly or somewhat agreed with the following statements. That God is a perfect being and cannot make mistakes. 65% of us believe that, which sounds like a lot, but then you start to think about the inverse. 35% of us aren't sure that God's perfect, and we're not sure if he makes mistakes or not. We're confused on the doctrine of Christ. 55% said that Christ was God's first and greatest created being. Christ is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father, without beginning or end. 55% agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're confused on the doctrine of sin. 66% of Christians believe that everyone sins a little, but most people are basically good. We're confused about the exclusivity of religion. 67% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. And 53% believe that the Bible is literally true. That's alarming to me. We're theologically confused, biblically illiterate, church is culturally compromised, and we're dead asleep. They're sleeping through it all. Neil Postman wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he explored the way the mass consumption of media literally rewires our brains and subverts the foundations of society. He wrote it in 1985. It kind of feels like it played out a little bit. I've been thinking about that, amusing ourselves to death. I don't know what the church is doing. If we're entertaining ourselves to death, just churching ourselves to death. But somewhere along the way, we've mixed up this dangerous cocktail. And it's comfort and luxury and money and the lowered bar of expectations and the redefinition of faithfulness and it's just let us slip off into a peaceful sleep. 
But Jesus sees it all. He sees the spiritual reality that our public reputation obscures to us. And he's the only one who can wake us up. So the second truth I want you to see is that Jesus summons us from our sleep. I love what he says here in verse 2. Just wake up. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. That word there, work up, wake up, is the same word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he found Peter sleeping. Peter, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch that you may not enter into temptation. It means to stay alert, to be awake, to keep watch. In the context here, what Jesus means is he's calling the church in Sardis to accept the spiritual reality as he sees it. Like, wake up and smell the roses. I want you to look at yourself as I see you. I want you to see yourself as I do. He hadn't called them to a comfortable life. He'd never given them an invitation to compromise. He'd said to them, hey, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. He'd called them to selfless, sacrificial pursuit of Jesus, whatever the cost. Wake up. And then I love the invitation he extends. Strengthen what remains. It's like he, he knew that there was life left. They were only mostly dead. And that if they would fan into flame the dying embers, they could rise to the occasion and complete the work that God had prepared for them. And so the question is, how? We don't want to be awake, asleep. We want to be awake. How do we get woken up to the spiritual reality? And he gives us three things. How do you wake up? Number one, he says, you remember what you received and heard. You remember the gospel. That is what Jesus is talking about. Remember what you received and heard. We know this is the gospel because in 1 Corinthians 15, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, I make known to you, my brothers, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, and by which also you're saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. Look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He said, y'all fallen asleep, but wake up and remember the good news. Across the New Testament, the idea of the gospel being passed on and received from one generation to the next is prevalent. It's, it's everywhere. I just read to you two of the instances. And we know this gospel message, which communicates to us all the saving facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is the thing that brings us, first of all, from death to life. 
You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which you loved us, even while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the good news, that each one of us was created by God for perfect and intimate relationship with him. But just like our first parents, we've gone our own way and rejected his authority. And the Bible calls that rejection sin. And because of our sin, each one of us is guilty. Most people are not good. I don't know where they're living. Most people I run into are angry and messed up from top to bottom. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're alienated from our creator and destined for eternity apart from his presence. But because God loved us, he sent Jesus to live a sinless life and to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And he rose again on the third day and he's living and reigning at God's right hand. The promise is that anybody who believes in him, who trusts in him, will be forgiven. Their sins wiped away, restored to relationship with God, and they'll live with him forever. That is the gospel that you heard and received way back when. For some of y'all, that was decades ago when you heard the gospel message for the first time. And the Holy Spirit took those words, and you didn't hear it from a preacher's mouth. You heard it as God's word. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Holy Spirit took it and massaged it into your heart and raised you up to new life in Christ so that you found yourself inexplicably believing that Jesus was the Son of God who died for you. And somewhere along the way, for many of us, that gospel message loses the vibrancy that it once had. We forget what it means to be saved by grace and to have lived apart from Christ. And we doze off. But Jesus says if we will remember what we received and heard, we can wake up again. He also says to keep it. To keep it. Or I put in your notes to respond to it in obedience. That's what the word means. It means to obey And the gospel message is the good news that's received by faith, but it also comes with certain commands and stipulations, implications for the life that you and I have been called to live. We know this because when Jesus sent out his apostles, including John, he told them to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything he commanded. So right from the beginning, we know that the good news about Jesus is meant to be believed, and it's also meant to be obeyed. The commandments that Christ gave us are good. They're for our good. Now, when we take the gospel seriously, we respond to him in obedience. That's why the Apostle Paul could say over in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. There are certain character qualities and virtues that are true of Christ that ought to be increasingly true of us, that we ought to walk in humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we remember the gospel, we respond to it in obedience, and then number three, we repent the ways that our life is out of alignment with the good news about Jesus and what he calls us to live. He expected the church in Sardis to acknowledge the spiritual reality, to, to, to look back at him and say, you're right, Jesus. We have been relying on the externals of our faith, 
And we've forgotten what it meant to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're sorry. Forgive us. Cleanse us. And help us obey. That is repentance. Repentance isn't just saying I'm sorry. It's not just asking for forgiveness. It's a multi-step process where you acknowledge what God says is true about you and express your sorrow over it. That you confess it. That you ask for cleansing from it. And then you ask for God to empower you to change. That's what the word repentance means. So think about it. Sardis gets this letter. Says, hey, y'all got a reputation for being alive, but I see the truth. You're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. And they say, how? And he says, remember the gospel, respond to it in obedience, and repent. Or else. And that's verse 3. Second half of verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Jesus says, if you don't take my warning seriously, there's coming a day when I'm going to come upon you in judgment. He's told other churches that he'll remove their lampstand. And I think that means he's going to snuff out the light that their church is. He'll let their church die. The metaphor of the thief is one of Jesus' favorites. He used it throughout the Gospels, especially over in Luke chapter 12, where he described a master of a house who went off on a long journey and left the steward in charge of his house. Jesus envisions two scenarios. One, the steward takes his job seriously, knowing that the master could come back at any moment. And so he keeps his head down and stays on task no matter how long it takes. But Jesus also envisions another scenario where the steward notices that his master's taken longer than he thought. And he decides that maybe he doesn't need to be so vigilant. That maybe, you know, the master's coming back someday. I'm not sure when, but what I do right now is no big concern. We'll have plenty of time to get things back in order before he arrives. And so he starts taking advantage of the master's possessions and of his master's household. He starts drinking the master's wine and getting drunk. He starts eating all the master's fine foods that he's laid up in his warehouses. He starts taking advantage of all his master's employees, having them run his laundry and do all his menial tasks. And finally, he starts beating them up. And one day, while the steward is enjoying the master's things, the master arrives. Jesus says that master will punish his steward and cut him up into tiny pieces and send him far away from him. Church and Sardis thought they had plenty of time to get right with God. Jesus said, you don't. It's going to be like a thief breaking into somebody's house while they're asleep. If they'd known when the thief was coming, they would have stayed awake. They would have guarded the door. They didn't know the thief sprang upon them. This would have been incredibly powerful for the church in Sardis. Their city set atop a hill and was known far and wide for being an impenetrable mountain fortress. It overlooked a wide valley. And so when armies would come, the people would retreat to the Acropolis, batten down the hatches, stake out their defenses. 
the armies would amass at the foot of the mountain and they would look up trying to find a way in and from the valley floor below, it looked impossible. In ancient history, the Persian army came upon the city of Sardis. The Persians gathered at the valley floor and one soldier was standing watch over the city, looking up when he noticed one of the soldiers of Sardis lost his helmet and it rolled down the hill. The Persian soldier watched. The soldier carefully navigated the winding mountain path to get his helmet and then go back up. So the Persian soldier went and told his commander they put together a raiding party, and that night they went up the mountain path that he had seen the soldier retrieve his helmet on. And when they got to the top, the people of Sardis thought they were so secure they hadn't even left a soldier to stand watch over that entrance of the city. The Persians went in and conquered Sardis. She said, that's what's going to happen to you. You think you're so safe relying on your public reputation, but I know the truth. And if you don't heed my wake-up call, I'm going to come upon you when you least expect it. I'm going to snuff out your lamp. But there's hope. The third truth I want you to see is that Jesus promises spiritual blessings to those who stay awake. We see that in verses 4 and 5. He says, but... You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So the hope is that even though there is a potential for judgment, Jesus looks in this church and he says, even in the sleepiest church, there are still some people who are awake. There are still some people who are faithful before me. He says, they haven't soiled their garments. Now, that means exactly what you think it means. It's a language of defilement and impurity. And throughout Scripture, wearing a white garment is emblematic of your holiness and righteousness before the Lord. And so... When Jesus looks at the church in Sardis, he sees that the vast majority of the church have defiled themselves. They've gotten too friendly with the world, and the impurity out there has infected the in here. But there are a few people who haven't compromised, and to those people, he promised spiritual blessing. The first one he promised is personal intimacy with him in this life. He says, they will walk with me. They will walk with me. Now think about this. You know the song, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, tells me I am his own. The joy we share as we gather there, no other has ever known. Now we're talking about intimacy, friendship, connection to Jesus. They will walk with me. Listen, it is impossible. For you to live with unconfessed sin and experience a deep, meaningful relationship with Jesus. 
It's impossible. In fact, it's so impossible, John warned his churches in 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But you know in your heart that you were made for more. You were made for more. You were made for something more meaningful than the life that soils your garments. You were made for fellowship with God, to have a deep, personal, and intimate relationship with Him, to speak with Him as your friend, to call on Him as your Father, to know His Spirit as your daily helper and guide, to know Jesus as your brother, the author and finisher of your faith, your Savior, the one to whom you look in every storm. You were made for that, and you know it. But it's impossible for you to sleepwalk with Jesus. It's impossible for you to experience that deep relationship as long as you make peace with your sin. So wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, obey, repent, and walk with him. Live in the light as he is in the light. You'll experience this blessing that he promises to all those. He says they'll, be, they'll walk with him in white for they're worthy. I want you to be worthy. I want you to live up to the calling that you've received in Christ. I don't want to see you suffer the consequences of your sin. I want to see you miserable the choices you've made. I want to see your default disposition before God and people to be joy and peace and love. And it's on offer for you. He tells you how to get it. Like what the commentator G.K. Beale said about these two verses. He said, identification with Jesus in his way of life now means walking with him day by day, refusing to defile yourself with the things of the world. Walking with Jesus now, identifying with him now in his way of life is the surest way to seek life with him forever. These blessings go together. There's personal intimacy with him in this life and confidence before his father in heaven in the next life. You saw that, I hope. In verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Look, the world doesn't see you as you are. So when you walk around in white garments here, you feel like a stranger like an alien in the world, like nobody understands you, and they don't. But Jesus said, if you stay the course and walk with him now, one day you will stand before him, and he's going to clothe you with white. You will be seen as you really are. You will be in white garments, never to fade. You'll be without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. You'll be clothed in white, and look what he's going to do. He says, I'm never going to blot your name out of the book of life. Now, just go home and Google book of life in scripture. Use the Bible gateway or something. 
And look at all the verses. I got them here. Psalm 69, 28, Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8, 20, 12, 15, 21, 27, 22, 19. The book of life is a book on whose pages are written the names of God's people. Jesus says in Revelation that the names were written from before the foundation of the world. That from before time began, God knew you. And he knit you together wonderfully in your mother's womb. And he planned out all your days before there ever was one. And he orchestrated all the events of your life to make sure when you were seven years old at VBS, when you were 25 and struggling, you heard the gospel message. And the Holy Spirit brought you to life. And day by day, you've been walking with Jesus, sometimes better than others. And all of it's working together so that God who began a good work in you could bring it to completion and you'd be perfectly conformed in the image of Jesus so that someday when you stand before God, he'd open up his book and he'd see your name. Oh, how would that feel? To stand before God and to know that the God who made all things and who loved you throughout your life, providing for you day by day, who was your refuge and safe place in the storms, had your name in the book, that you weren't an afterthought to him. You're one of his children. You belong here. It's right here. I found you. You're here. You're where you're supposed to be. Jesus says the person who stays wide awake to what God is doing in the world and walks with him day by day, remembering the gospel, obeying it, repenting when they go astray, keeping themselves undefiled and unspoiled, will stand before God, and God's going to say, welcome home. You're where you're supposed to be. Your name's right here. This isn't a warning, like, hey, y'all better watch out. God stands ready with his eraser. It's motivation. So stay the course. God knows the plans he has for you. Your name is never going to be wiped out. Keep walking with me, and then you'll be clothed in white. And not only that, but Jesus says he's going to confess your name before his Father and before his angels. Jesus loved to tell his disciples this. If you're ashamed of me before men, then I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who's in heaven. But if any man acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge him before my Father and before his angels. These are the true words of Jesus. Not only will your name be there in black and white, but Jesus will read it out. She's where she's supposed to be. He's where he's supposed to be. I walked with them. They walked with me. They knew me. They have made their home in me. They abided in me. They obeyed my words. They took their commandments to heart. Father, they're here. They're home. Listen, Jesus offers you these blessings. Spoken to the church in Sardis. But let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I wonder what Jesus would say if he wrote us a letter. He is here, right? We know that intellectually. God is everywhere all at once. 
Then he gives us these extra things to remind us, like where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There's a few more of us here than two. He's given us his spirit to be his presence with us wherever we go. And so Jesus is here. And what if we could see him moving among us? Observing the bottoms in the seat, the budgets on the page. What if he was strolling through our buildings, assessing our ministries? What would he say? And then what if he evaluated our church based on your personal spiritual vitality? What would he see? I guess what I mean is, we have a reputation. I have a reputation. You have a reputation. Everywhere we go and everything we do, people think about us, who we are as men and women, and who we are as a church. Jimmy was telling me she was wearing her T-shirt. So where we go, we're wearing our Central Baptist Church t-shirts. And when people see that name, Central Baptist Church, oh, yeah, I've heard about that church. I'm biased, but I think we have a good reputation. I hope our reputation is that we love God, that we love people, that our greatest desire is to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus more today than I knew him yesterday, and I want to follow him more passionately than I ever have in my entire life. But what the world says about me and what the world says about our church means this much. The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks of us. So what would he say about our church? What would he say about you? You have a reputation, but... So I don't know what exactly God wants us to do. I don't know how we're supposed to respond. I don't know we're supposed to obey. And I know that if a church or if a Christian will heed Christ's wake-up call, they can experience renewed intimacy with Jesus in this life. They can have confidence before the Father in heaven the next life. And that's what I want. And so to the extent that I'm asleep or that you're asleep, I pray that this text and what God has spoken to us from it would have the same effect that my wife screams at the top of her lungs and fists falling on my body had on me that night. I hope you can't go home and say, oh, what a great message today. I hope the adrenaline is pumping through your veins and you're trembling before the Lord who sees all and knows all. I hope you're on the verge of tears. I hope you're overwhelmed. I hope you're laid bare before the one to whom we almost give account. Put together a few 
things to help us respond this morning. Of course, you know how you need to respond. The Holy Spirit's probably already prompted your heart. And in just a minute, our band's going to come and prepare to play. And as they're getting set up, there are going to be some slides scrolling through on the screen. Psalmist teaches us to pray to search me, O God, to try my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. What we're asking God to do is to take his word, which is perfect and precious, which is living and active, and use it as a giant spotlight into the recesses of our souls. To say to him, hey, maybe I have been asleep. Maybe I haven't been thinking about my spiritual life the way I should. And so as these slides are scrolling, my hope is that you'll use them as personal examination points. Hope you're not guilty of all of them, but surely you're guilty of some of them. There are sins of the mind, sinful attitudes, sins of your mouth, and sinful behaviors. And if you need these printed out, you can ask me and I can get them for you. But church family, use these as a way to prompt your own thinking. Ask the Holy Spirit to use them to show you places in your life of unconfessed sin. Maybe you'll want to come and kneel at the altar like we do. And just before God and people, you don't care what anybody thinks. All you care about is what God thinks, and he sees it all anyway. So might as well put your body in motion, match it up with the posture of your heart, and kneel before God, cry out to him for forgiveness. Maybe this morning as I was talking about the gospel message, you're like, what is this gospel, gospel, gospel? And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Anybody. Doesn't matter how messed up your life is, how far from God you think you are. You're not so far from God that he can't do an amazing work in your life today. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. And if you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh to live a life for you and to die a death for you, you can be forgiven of your sins. You can be restored to relationship with him. You can live a meaningful life where your default is joy and love and peace. And I want that for you. I happen to believe that you're here because God wants that for you. So let me be a stand-in. Let me be proof that somebody does care about you, that there is a God out there who cares about your life. I believe your name's written in his book. He knows those who are his. He brought you here today so you'd be reunited with the God who loved you and created you. Now, I'm going to be down here at the front just smiling away. Come and grab my hand, and I'd love to help you figure out what it means. Maybe, you know, you're so far from God that today you've got to get back on track, and the only way to make that happen is to just go public with it and stand up and come talk to somebody. I'll be down here. We're going to have some prayer partners in the back. they got blue lanyards on. Come talk to them. Maybe you know that you want to live for Jesus. You want so badly to follow him, and you need a church family imperfect place. I'll be honest with you. But we want to follow Jesus and we want to help you follow Jesus. So if we can be that family for you, we'd love to be. And if you need prayer for anything else, your toe is hurting you. You got a child who's far from Christ. 
you got a situation going on at work that you just need somebody to believe with you that God can come through. Or if you've got an area of sin that you want somebody to pray with you over, I'd love to do that, as our prayer partners would too. They're going to be in the back. What matters most is that you respond to God in obedience. Do whatever you need to do. So I'm going to pray. We're going to have some light music playing so we don't hear each other sniffle and cough. And you respond to God how you know you should. I'll be here if you want to come kneel at the front. Feel free to do so. Don't be surprised if somebody puts a hand on your shoulder just as a sign that they're with you. They're praying with you. All right, let's pray now.